Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Humans have been evolving for millions of years, and in response to pressures in our environment, we're continuing to evolve. So why are so many parts of our body so flawed? In his new book, Evolution Gone Wrong, The Curious Reasons Why Our Bodies Work or Don't, Alex Bezarides looks into why so many of us suffer from allergies, require eyeglasses and braces on our teeth, have bunions on our feet, have bad backs and knees and tendons that blow out. Professor Bezerides uh, is uh, a biologist at Lewis Clark State College who specializes in anatomy and evolution. His book is published by Hanover State Press, and I'm pleased to welcome him to our show now. Hi. Hi, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Considering how long humans have existed, shouldn't we expect our bodies to be well adapted to the environment? I think it's it's a fair thing to think. Um, and in, in many ways, we are. Um, I think structures like our eyes that have had a long time to adjust to the current environment they're in, current environment they're in, are, are very well adapted, and and our vision is is really quite quite strong. I wrote a whole chapter about its its faults, but I think if you just sort of had to pick, you know, one structure that, that works really well. I think our vision is a good example, but a lot of our other features haven't had as much time to sort of catch up to our environmental changes and and things like our our knees and our feet and our backs that that have to deal with our relatively recent switch to bipedalism. They haven't had as much time to work out the kinks, and and we suffer in many ways as a result. You don't deal with the mechanical causes of our imperfections, but rather the evolutionary ones. How much of us is inherited from the early evolution of animals in the ocean. Um, we'll get to the whole business of eyes and, and their development underwater, but uh, is, is, uh, you say that the human body is kind of like a dolphin or a whale out of water. Yeah, what I mean by that is, is that we've had to deal with this very recent um, transition from the from the from the trees where our ancestors were in the trees down to the ground and that causes a lot of trouble and, and the reason i sort of equate that to a dolphin or whale is that dolphins and whales were were mammals are mammals of course but they're descended from ancestors that were on the land and mm. mammals evolved on the land um from from other animals from reptiles and but then a couple of select groups of mammals went back into the water and so they have to deal with this sort of weird environmental transition in their own way they had their nose moved back on their head to make their blow holes and they have all these skeletal changes that make them better swimmers and and so they're also sort of dealing with this funny environmental transition now their theirs took place 50 million years ago where ours is is much more recent um our ancestors only came out of the trees you know four to four to five million years ago and that's not a lot of time to knock out the the kinks in a foot or a back or a knee so let's talk about eyes didn't they evolve originally in the ocean where the, the eyes of our vertebrate ancestors evolved to function underwater that's right. The vertebrate eye evolved in water and was and was in the water for a hundred million years until some ambitious some ambitious fish sort of started to dabble on in life in the shallows and sort of in that transition from land to sea, and and because about of thirty three hundred seventy five million years ago, it's a long time. It's a long time. Around three hundred seventy five million years ago, the one of the most important fossil discoveries of my lifetime is the of is of this transitional fossil from from sea to land, the Tiktaalik fossil discovered by Neil Shubin and his group, and 
And those animals, the eye that evolved in the water was a wet eye. It, it made sense for an eye that was in the water to, to evolve, to be, to be wet. It made it so the, the light didn't have to bend again upon coming through the water and then into the eye. And so that's how the eye evolved. And then all of a sudden when animals started living out of the water, well, you can't just wipe the slate clean and start over. I, a, a poorly functioning eye is better than no eye. And so then rolled forward 375 million years and it's had a fair amount of time to to work out those kinks but i i would imagine that the the view of the world for the first proto-amphibians had to be a rather blurry one is uh, the fact that we are no longer uh, our eyes are no longer underwater the reason that we blink as much as 14,000 times a day that's right so we are stuck keeping our eyes wet because they evolved in a wet environment and our solution for that is to to cover coat the surface of them with a little bit of liquid and run the windshield wipers on them many 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 times a day. I talk in the book about how there are other solutions that other vertebrates have come up with. Geckos, for example, don't blink; they don't have eyelids like we do. They they have these really long tongues, and if you've ever seen a gecko go about mm-hmm. it, what they do is they lick their eyeballs, which is just another kind of creative way to do it. Some other Animals have a sort of third eyelid that kind of just stays over the eye, kind of covering it up for a lot of the time called the nictitating membrane. And that helps keep their eye moist. Humans have a, it was in our lineage. We have a little remnant of it at the nasal corner of your eye. That's what that little nub is right there. It's a, it's a remnant of the nictitating membrane, but somewhere in our lineage, it was lost. And now we're stuck. We're stuck blinking constantly. So how much have our eyes changed to adapt to our, our specific situation? I think quite a bit. The the length of the eye has to, I mean, the whole trick to an eye is you need to land the light directly on the retina. If it lands in front of it, that's myopia or nearsightedness. If it lands behind it, then that's hyperopia, farsightedness. And the, the length of the eye, I think, is what has really had to change over time to switch to the to the environment of 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 land and air rather than than sea and the water, um, I read a lot in the in the back part of the eye chapter about how one of the biggest problems with the eye is not really an evolutionary problem, but it's a cultural problem where it re- the light requires adequate amounts of natural light to develop to the right length. And with this entire generation of kids that's, you know, they're growing up in basins, playing video games, never going outside, their eyes are not developing to the right length. And that is, that is a big part of the explanation behind the myopia epidemic that is sort of sweeping the globe. You say they don't even have to be doing healthy things outside because it's the light and not the activity that makes the difference. That's right. I mean, I, I like the idea of just completely kicking kids off of screens and just making them go outside to kick a ball around or ride a bike. But even if they are kind of muddling around on a on a phone or a screen, as long as they're doing it outside, they're at least getting that natural light that that helps their eye develop and and will will there is evidence to suggest it would make it less likely that they would need vision correction at some point i mean there there are places in the world where the rates of myopia are just astounding with you know percentages in the the in the 90 percentiles for for kids in their teens and early 20s is a part of the problem also that uh light travels more slowly through water than it does through air but our eyes 
to some degree were are still the eyes of uh, underwater animals. That's exactly right. That's where sort of we are in a pinch just evolutionarily is that we tried to, you know, that we have a jury rigged eye that's been duct taped together to, to make it work as well as it can on land. But ultimately it did evolve in the water. And you're right that the light travels at a different speed through water than it does through air. So um, it's 375 million years is a, is a long time to work out the kinks. And in fact, now, if you put our eye underwater, it, it doesn't work nearly as well as it does on land, but but at the end of the day, it's still a structure that has its origins in the water. And for that reason, it will always be somewhat less than perfect. How do eyeglasses compensate for that change? So they, they change that point at which the, the light is hitting, hitting the retina. When you go to an optometrist, they're able to sort of figure out where your light is landing incorrectly. And light passes through glass at a different speed also. So it's a way of manipulating the way that the light bends. And if you, if you, if you manipulate it in just the right way with contacts or glasses, then you can take that light that was, that was landing either in front of or behind or all over the place. That's astigmatism and, and get it to land perfectly on the retina. Not an easy thing to do, which is why optometrists have to go to school for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have weird eyes. Uh, one eye, uh, one eye is nearsighted. The other one um, is astigmatic. So, well, anyway, you you offer evolutionary explanations for why we can distinguish more shades of green of green than any other color. Yeah, color vision is such a fascinating topic for me because it's it's one of these funny things where you get more complexity. Sort of the deeper you go back evolutionarily, the 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 original setup for for reptiles and and maybe the earliest mammals was that they had color vision with with four types of cones. So it's your cones in your in your in the back of your eye and your retina that that give you color vision, and the rods, of course, just give you vision in low light. And there are in, in reptiles, there are four types of cone pigments. So they can see all these shades of color that, that humans cannot. Humans, most humans only produce three. People that are colorblind only produce two. And when mammals became mammals, one of the things that happened is that they were, they were a very nocturnal animal. They became nocturnal for a long period of time. And so they went into that process as tetrachromatic with these four types of cone pigments. But then if you're only awake at night, the importance of your color vision is diminished greatly. And a couple of those cones picked up mutations that made it such that when, when mammals became diurnal again, once dinosaurs went away and mammals came out of the dark and back into the daylight, um, a couple of the, a couple of the cones had had mutated to a degree that didn't they didn't work anymore so then they were dichromatic and and the primate lineage was able to recover one of those cone types one of them duplicated and became a, a third type of cone so primates have have unique color vision amongst mammals and what really makes them unique is their ability to see green primates can discern thousands tens of thousands some people say hundreds of thousands of shades of just green which gives us a unique ability to to decide, all right, this, this leaf is going to be a good one for lunch. And that one that I had yesterday made my belly sick. Whereas to another animal, the, those two leaves might, might look hundred percent identical. You speculate that the late works of Claude Monet may have been influenced by the artist's likely newfound ability to perceive ultraviolet light following 
cataract surgery when he was 82 years old. Yeah, this was a really interesting thing that I learned in the process of working on the eye chapter. I, I knew that humans are not sense you know, that, that we're unable to see UV reflectance generally. So I knew that going in. And I always just assumed that it was because we didn't have, we didn't produce a pigment that in our eyes that was sensitive to UV light. I always figured that was the reason that we were just sort of cut off at that, at that lower end of the electromagnetic spectrum. And then um, I started reading about, about this example and I had had this conversation that I sort of had to replay for myself with my graduate advisor whose father had had cataract surgery. And it turns out that the human eye is actually sensitive to UV light, but our lens filters it out. And so it never makes it back to the cells that could respond to the UV light. Well, when you have these days, when you have cataract surgery, um, they put in an artificial lens that, that filters out the UV. But mm-hmm. way back in Monet's day, um, when he had cataract surgery, he just, they didn't even put in any kind of synthetic lens. So he just had nothing in that eye um, in terms of a lens. So the UV light was then able to reach back to his retina and engage those cells and allow him to perceive shades of color that other people couldn't see. Now, I'm sure he had pretty blurry vision in that eye because he didn't have a lens, um, but, but some people have argued that, he, that his late work may have been influenced by the fact that he was seeing into the UV. Hasn't it been ascertained that more than half of European adults have visual defects? That's a yeah, lot. Well, what about non-Europeans? Or is it a yeah. matter of just not being tested or... or uh, do they do people of color have different uh, different kinds of eyes? I th- I think that's a a stat that could probably be um, transmitted sort of globally. Getting getting broad statistics on on vision was not a simple thing to do. So I found some that that covered one continent, and I called it good. But I know that the the rates in the states are also um, quite significant. Now, of course, it'd be really interesting to find some epidemi- epidemiological work that that covered people that do spend more of their upbringing outside because that that hypothesis about the about the development of light the, the development of the eye for you know children that spend more time outside certainly in parts of the world kids are spending much 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 more time outside but i've never seen a study that sort of explored it from a sort of the perspective of, of looking at kids all through growing all through their growing up my guest on today's leonard Lopate at large is alex bezarides uh, his book, Evolution Gone Wrong, The Curious Reasons Why Our Bodies Work or Don't, is published by um, Harvard Square Press. And this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. You ask a lot of, of uh, questions uh, using the word howl, like uh, why does our our, our primate lineages transition from the trees to the ground continue to affect how our bodies function and break down every day. Even yeah, it's today. One of the biggest, it's one of the biggest features of the book is I think if, I, if you could only give me two structures to talk about that have sort of left us with some difficulties with our body, they have to be the, 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 the brain and the explosion in the size of the brain. Um, and then the transition to bipedalism. Now, obviously, there's a whole other book to be written, Evolution Gone Right, about, about all the amazing things that those two features allow us to do as humans. They are almost inarguably the features that make us human, our, our large brains and walking around on two feet. But I felt like that 
book had kind of been written already, not with that title, but it had people had explored sort of all the amazing features and wonders of the human body. And I was more interested in looking at well, what are maybe what are some of the compromises or trade-offs that had to be made for those incredible features? And with 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 bipedalism, once you took an animal that was on all fours and and had it start wandering around on two feet, a transition that took a long time, millions of years, um, there were some compromises that had to be made. And the one that that I keep coming back to is with the the shape of the back. So you you took a back that was sort of this kind of stiff little sort of C-shaped spine um, that worked for animals in the trees. And it had to become this kind of flexible curvy model to support a life on two feet. There needed to be a curve built into the lower part of the back, the lumbar part of the back to help shift the center of gravity to get it more over the hips so that, so that early hominids wouldn't just tumble forward. Um, and, and there needed to be an upper curvature, a cervical curvature to support our giant head so that the neck and the, the, the neck muscles wouldn't be too strained. And so there was another curvature necessary up top. And to keep those curves in the correct shape and in the right place takes a lot of core strength and a lot of back muscles and abdominal muscles. And any kind of sort of weakening of that core causes them to shift out of place. And that's where back pain starts to come in. So Yes, it's amazing being up on two feet. We have free hands. We have all these things that we can do, but we sort of have precarious and, and, and achy backs as a result that, that you really have to be careful and take care of and, and keep that core incredibly strong so that they don't give you too much trouble. Were human spines built to handle our newfound ability to balance on only two feet? Not really. I mean, they've, they've changed to make the best of a bad situation. Um, but you, you know, you look at a baby, a baby is born with the ancestral spine. A baby is born with that C-shaped spine. That's why they can't walk. And, and then we sort of, as, as time goes on in that first year or two, those curves build in there and they build up the muscle strength to, and then they go through a period where they're sort of half walk, half crawl. That's their toddling phase. And then once those curves are built into the system, then they're, then they're off and running. So like any other feature of the body, it's, you know, we've, we've, adapted to the situation and the humans that have, you know, the most successful structures are the ones that go on to, to find a mate and reproduce and pass them on. So the back, you know, the back's doing well as well as it could, I guess, but, but it's always going to be a little bit clunky because just like the eye, it kind of started with, with, with the wrong blueprints <laughs> for the current environment. <laughs> And you're suggesting that back trouble, which is the leading cause of disability globally, is directly traceable to uh, our leaving the trees for open areas. Is humans and, and to some degree chimpanzees and no other primates? Yeah, that's right. I, th I think it is directly traceable to that. Now, with all, these, with all the issues I cover in the book, I try to make it clear that, it, that the problems are not exclusively evolutionarily, that, that, that often there's some societal things on top of it. So certainly the situation is not helped by people um, you know, not moving around as much, being less active you know, and, and not keeping their core as strong. So obviously those things play a role as well. You can, you can do your back a lot of, a lot of help by being active and by keeping your, 
your back muscle strong and your abdominal muscle strong, that keeps your back in good shape. But there are some people that do all of those things and still end up with terrible, miserable back pain. And for those, I think it's, I think it's fair to blame our evolutionary past. And well, why did we wind up uh, standing up on two legs in the first place? Uh, yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. It's a question people have tried to answer since the, you know, <laughs> since the recognition of our ancestry, I think the leading current hypothesis on it um, is that there was a, a significant change in climate in Africa around that four to five million year period. There's, there's evidence for that. And that that spurred a change in, in our diet that it was not an issue of sort of like what deciding, okay, we're going to leave the, the trees. It was sort of a more of an issue of having to leave the trees and down on the ground. Um, our ancestors had to forage over a larger area and being on two feet was a, was a more efficient way to cover long distances for, for our structure and you know, for the structure of the human body. And we are, a very, we are very efficient covering long distances on, on two feet. And so that, that's kind of the current leading thought there. I, I leaned a lot in those chapters on the work of um, this, this really fantastic paleoanthropologist, Jeremy, Jeremy De Silva. He works at Dartmouth and he just wrote a book called First Steps that if people really like the musculoskeletal portion of the book, I, I think they should go read that as a follow-up because he, he's really the expert in that field. Don't cultural factors also come into play with problems in backs? Uh, for example, lifting heavy objects, doesn't that put us at a higher risk? No question. People that have to do sort of repetitive heavy lifting um, are, are just almost asking too much of their, of their muscles and their back to, to expect them to not run into trouble. So you're absolutely right. The, the work environment is a big piece of the puzzle. And there's been all this research recently about for people that, that sort of have more desk bound jobs about how they should be doing their job. Should they be sitting? Should they be standing? And the, the latest research that I've read suggests that the, the mix is really there. The trick rather is really to mix it up. You don't want to be sitting all day, but you also don't want to be standing all day. That's not, that's also not very good for you. You want to, you want to have a, a mix of, of ways that you go about your work. So, you know, work for a little while sitting down, then take a break and work standing up for a little while and then go walk around for a bit and, and just don't do anything all day. And certainly you're right. You're absolutely right. If you can avoid lifting heavy objects all day, your back will be much happier for it. Now our feet acquire bunions, knees blow out. Is that despite of evolution or because of it? I think um, the, the feet and knees, I mean, the foot is such an interesting example. You take this foot that was largely a structure that was used for flexibility and grasping and gripping in the trees, it was very similar to the hand. If you if you look, sort of look at how the other great ape feet look, they you know they they sort of I have a, an illustration in the book with a with, with a foot with the with feet from a great ape, and they look a lot like the human hand. They sort of have an almost have an opposable. It's not fully opposable, but they have this big toe that's kind of off to the side that almost like makes it look opposable. It is largely opposable. And they can grab things with their feet and they can grab things with their feet and they can swing around and you take that structure and bring it down into the ground. And it's like, okay, foot, you're done doing those kinds of things. Now we need you to take a pounding walking around on the earth. You're going to travel longer distances and you're going to mash around on the ground. And that's a lot to ask of the foot. I mean, there's, there are so many, there are 26 bones just in each foot 
And that's not the foot that, that you would make if you were making a foot to take a beating and taking a pounding, it would have many, many fewer bones in it. Um, like the foot of, a, of, of birds is a good example. Like I bring up ostriches in the book and, and ostriches have many, many, many fewer bones in their foot. And they've been down on the, you know, they've been doing this for a lot longer than we have running around on the ground and their feet are much, much better at taking a pounding as a result, even just in other mammals that get around on the ground and have been doing it for a long time the foot has sort of moved in a direction of, of having many more of those teeny little bones that we have down at the end of the foot. They, they sort of come up higher in the leg and the, the, the piece that actually contacts and strikes the ground has many, many fewer moving parts, which means fewer sprained ankles, fewer slippings, and you know, just less trouble generally. And the way you describe it in the book is our, our the human foot is made up of a whole gob of bones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So the, I mean, to some degree, could, could, could evolution have given us better feet or uh, is this a logical uh, development? I just think it's the foot that we're stuck with because because of where we came from. I mean, the the question really is, can the foot, how much can the foot change moving forward? And and obviously nothing's going to happen overnight. It's going to, you know, it would take millions of years, but if, if at some point our, our foot injuries impede our ability to, to, to move around and find mates and reproduce, then, then it's not inconceivable that the foot could, could make some, that there may be modifications to the foot over time. If there are mutations that are in there that people have, you know, one fewer ankle bone or something, and they end up with a less likely to be spraining their ankles, those kinds of things, do happen. They take a really long time. I, I go back to the the mouth as an example, like teeth that don't fit very well in the mouth. They are shrinking, like human teeth are shrinking, but it takes an incredibly long time for those processes to happen. So it's not the kind of thing you see in a lifetime or overnight. Well, the the feet somehow, they're at the bottom of uh, our, our legs and sometimes a ligament or a tendon uh, splits uh, for what seems like no apparent reason. Yeah, you're right. The so I, I focus a lot on the just the bones, but all the little soft tissues that hold them together also um, can be very problematic. And that's such a one thing I, I like to stress in the book is that I, these aren't just issues that happen to people as they get to be 70, 80, 90 years old. Some of these issues can happen to very, very young people. I bring up the story of a former student of mine, a woman who by the time she got to my class at 20, you know, 19, 20 years old, she had already had multiple knee surgeries. She's now had eight, 10, 12 knee surgeries in an attempt to get her knee to just to, to work correctly. I have a, a young nephew that had soft tissue issues, exactly like you're describing where, a, where a, a ligament went down and just didn't connect the right way. And he's had to have multiple surgeries to correct that. He's, you know, 10, 11 years old. So there are these, there are these issues with the foot and knee that, that seem to plague people and can do it from even a very young age. And I, and I think a lot of those issues are, are rooted in our past. Well, some people have no problems with those things. So is this, is there a genetic factor? For sure. There's a genetic factor and, and you're absolutely right that some people have no problems. And these days, I don't think it, I mean, those, I don't think those things play much of a role in in dictating who ends up, you know, having, having a successful life and being able to pass on their genes. So in a large part, many of these issues, we just continue to sort of pass down to the next generation. Whereas, you know, you roll the clock back far enough and, and certainly some of these kinds of problems um, 
were weeded out. I'm sure it's much better than it could be. It could have been even way worse if, if we hadn't, you know, didn't have the wonderful process of natural selection, but, but certainly there were people who, who were unable to gather food or unable to, to just make it because the, because of their anatomical clunkiness. <laughs> I was thinking about athletes, for example, baseball pitchers, some can throw the ball over a hundred miles an hour. Others can't. Yeah. And, but they're all uh, athletes. They've all they've all gone through the same weight rooms and lifted, you know, developed their muscles in the same way. So, so there must be other factors. There certainly are other factors, and I think a lot of those other factors are genetics. I I'm, I'm a big baseball fan myself, and I just sit there and and marvel at the ability of some of these some of these people to just rear back time and time again and throw a baseball hundred miles an hour. I mean, yeah. I, I, I played all kinds of sports growing up and I, I, I could throw, I can throw a baseball pretty hard. Like I, I don't know how I can, how hard I can throw it anymore, but, but back in the day I could throw a baseball 80, 82, maybe 84 miles an hour if I was really able to rip it. And the difference between that and being able to throw it 94 or hundred miles an hour is just so extraordinary. I, I've been watching Shohei Otani, like the following his box scores and highlights and whatnots. And just to see him rear back and throw that thing hundred miles an hour is just. Oh, Jacob deGrom. Yeah. Jacob deGrom. Yeah. I live in New York. Jacob deGrom's the same way. I saw the other day he threw, I don't know, some insane number of consecutive pitches over hundred miles an hour. Yeah. And you just think about the amount of torque that takes on the elbow and the shoulder and everything. That's a wonder that it, that it can even do it one time. And he's in his thirties. Um, yeah, that is, which is another remarkable aspect of it. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Well, you don't bone connected to you. Foot bone, your foot bone connected to you. Heel bone, your heel bone connected to you. Ankle bone, your ankle bone connected to you. Leg bone, your leg bone connected to you. Knee bone, your knee bone connected to you. Thigh bone, your thigh bone connected to you. Hip bone, your hip bone connected to you. Back bone, your back bone connected to you. Shoulder bone, your shoulder bone connected to you. Neck bone, your neck bone connected to you. Head bone, I hear the We're word back with the Alex Bezaridis. Uh, I'm sorry if I'm if I mispronounce your name sometimes. Um, but it's Bezarides. You, uh, yeah, Bezarides. You've avoided the trap of Bezarides, which is the trap everybody falls into. So you're you're doing great. <laughs> B e z z e r i d e s. Uh, the book we're t- discussing is Evolution Gone Wrong: The Curious Reasons Why Our Bodies Work or Don't, and it is published by Hanover Square Press. Um, the uh, every one of the problems that you write about requires his own medical specialists, ophthalmologists, dentists, orthopedists, podiatrists, neurologists, gynecologists, obstetricians. Uh, does that suggest that they're all quite complex in their own rights? Absolutely. Each one. And unique in each own. case. Yeah. Each one sort of followed its own evolutionary path. It's one of the ways I thought about trying to organize the book. I, I had a few sort of separate ideas, you know, I was going to write about the mouth and I was going to write about teeth. And then, but then I just kind of got to thinking like, what, what other areas do we sort of have these medical specialists, you know? And and then you think about a podiatrist that all they do is feed them. I and they study, they study, 
they go to they go straight from undergrad into just studying the the foot and lower leg for years on end, which suggests that it is incredibly complex and complicated and such a important part of the body to to get right. And that when they when they do surgery for somebody's arch or they have to, you know, repair a ligament, I mean, what an incredibly important thing to be doing that you're going to affect you know someone's livelihoods and then the way they move around for the rest of their life so it does require an incredible amount of training but but you're right each of these issues sort of followed its own evolutionary path and 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 occurs for a different reason so i think for that reason we have to have all these different specialists to to keep all the different parts of the body body working no different how you, you know you take your car to one place for brakes you take it to another place for the engine you take it to another place for shocks you take it you know it, it, it's kind of like that I always come back to car analogies for some point, for some reason when I'm writing. <laughs> well, I'll be seeing my dentist next week. Uh, so to, you mentioned teeth. You write about an experiment you conducted with a class about the histories of, of the students' teeth. What did you ask them? Yeah. So when we talk, when we cover the digestive system in anatomy and physiology, I always show this image from a textbook that just is of the mouth where we, we learn the different types of teeth. So, you know, okay, there's this many incisors and this many premolars and so on and so forth. And the picture just has these 32 perfectly fitting teeth inside the mouth. And it just, it just looks like there's just nothing out of place. And, and one time that I was teaching this just kind of on a whim, I just said, all right, everybody put your hand up in the air so we've got, you know, it's, it's a big class. So we've got 60, 70 students in there. And I said, um, all right, now lower your hand if you ever had any wisdom teeth pulled. And that, you know, that takes out about half the class. So you've got 30, 35 hands left in the air. All right, all right, of the people that are left, now lower your hand if you ever had braces. And now you're down to, you know, four or five students out of the, out of the group. And then you sort of look at, all right, and you look over and say, all right, like, you know, Jonathan, like, would you qualify your teeth as straight? You've got all your teeth and you've never had braces, but are, you know, of the five of you that are left, who has actually has straight teeth. And then you're down to like two kids hmm. out of 70 that have all their teeth and they fit in their mouth and it all works perfectly. And that was one of the first times that I kind of started to ask myself the why question instead of the how question. So instead I, of focusing on how something works, I, I wanted to know like, why is that? Why don't our teeth fit in our mouths? Yeah, I always wondered why some people had buck teeth and some people had big gaps uh, in right. the, the two front teeth. And, Is it, I, and I always assumed that was because they sucked their thumbs when they were kids. Right. And I'm, I'm sure there's, there's there are probably some modern elements and pieces to it. But I, I think a big part of it is this just sort of mismatch between our jaw and our teeth. We have these giant jaws because of our evolutionary past that required these big jaws with big, strong teeth to chew things apart. And then at some point in the, in the lineage of humans, we developed tools and we started to use, and we, and we could control fire and we developed pottery and all these things kind of came together to make it so that we didn't really need a big, powerful jaw anymore. And mutations got sucked into, you know, the mutations popped up in the, in the muscles that, that dictate the jaw. And, and we ended up with a much weaker jaw and teeth. They're an independent structure from the jaw. They, they just haven't quite caught up in the shrink over time. And now there's this mismatch. And of course there's a modern element to it, to it too. There's a use it or lose it kind of scenario that I talk about where some, some experiments done by Daniel Lieberman at Harvard have shown that, if the jaw is not sort of put through the paces as you grow up, then it, then it, you'll end up with more of a mismatch between the jaw and teeth. You can develop a stronger, 
jaw that's a little bigger that makes for a better match between your jaw and teeth. If while you're growing up, you're, you're, you're chewing, chewing meat and chewing vegetables and chewing and not just, just eating smoothies and mush all the time, which is a really fascinating aspect of it also. In the evolution from fish to reptilian to mammalian, 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 mammalian teeth, why do human teeth come in those different shapes and sizes? Yeah, it's a, it's a uniquely mammalian characteristic to have this mouth full of all these different types of teeth. And it comes back to diet. Um, mammals fill very many, many different environmental niches. Like you think about sort of the niches that lizards are in. Like I'm currently living down in Mexico and the environment is covered in lizards. There's lizards everywhere. There's lizards inside my apartment. Um, but where I come from back home, you know, it's, it's a, it's not an environment that's very lizard friendly. So to see any kind of, to see any kind of reptile at home is a very back up in Northwestern, the Northwestern United States is a very rare event. Whereas mammals kind of cover the globe and a big key to that being able to fill such a diversity of habitats are our teeth. We have, we have teeth that allow some mammals to sort of grind and crunch away on on food and at the same time be able to snip at it with with incisors or rip it apart with canines so we have this this mouth that allows us a diversity of diets and it's been a it's been a pretty important part of the mammalian story when we look at uh the the fossil record is that always true because four million years ago our ancestors uh were, were just starting to uh, leave the trees and they were transitioning from eating fruits and leaves to grasses and sedges. That's right. They were eating a different type of diet. And that, that is that transition there, I think is one of the things that sort of put us on a path to trouble with our teeth because the, the eating tubers and sedges and grasses required these really large, powerful molars that at the time, I think we're probably a pretty decent fit in the, in the jaw because the, the require, you also had to have a large, powerful jaw to be chewing those things all day. Um, but then over time, as the need for such a large jaw diminished when cooking and processing food came in, well, we were sort of stuck with these large, powerful molars and they're shrinking. Um, they're, they're shrinking quite a bit over the last, over the last hundred thousand years, but they just haven't quite caught up yet. And well, you know, it's hard to say now with the selective process being what it is in modern day humans, if they're ever going to catch up, I don't think, I don't think orthodontists are going to be out of work anytime soon. <laughs> So although the jaws shrunk, tooth sizes remain relatively the same? Is it yeah, they're, leading to a yeah, kind of a tooth-jaw mismatch? There's a tooth-jaw mismatch. And the jaw shrunk, you know, for evolutionary time, the jaw shrunk, shrunk pretty quickly. And teeth are shrinking, but just, it's just a matter of comparing the two rates. The teeth just haven't quite caught up. And But... Though, you know, the, the evolution is still going on. It's still happening. And, and you hear stories about even number of wisdom teeth, you know, slowly changing over time. You hear you, you talk to people that as adults never had all their wisdom teeth even come in. And so these things are still in flux as all things are with evolution. Um, but it's important to recognize that it's, that it's slow and that, that in our lifetimes and even in our kids, many, many line, generations down the line, you're not, you're not going to see the change in that amount of time. You have to be able to, you know, jump in your time machine and jump many, many millions of years into the future to really know what's going to happen. Does the fossil record reveal what happened after humans learned to control fire and began to hunt and farm and eat cooked meats? 
So the meats the, demand a whole other kind of uh, action by our teeth. That's right. And Unless the, you're a vegetarian or a vegan. Right. The the structures that you that you can look for are in the in, are in the head and the neck, the size of the cranial, the size of the cranium. The, so when humans come out of the trees, um, the brain isn't nearly as big as it is today. And in the ensuing couple of million years after that, the brain starts to explode and it eventually triples in size during that time. And that tripling is really what spurred the these incredible advances the 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 then use of our hands so the hands were free but but the evidence now suggests that sort of the freeing of the hands was probably not the original impetus for by or, or sorry sorry tool use rather tool use was not was probably not the original impetus for for having free hands um, that, that it was sort of this change in diet and getting around on the ground in, in another way and maybe being able to use the hands to help you forage, but, but not necessarily tool use. The first tools don't really come in until a little bit later. Um, Have the changes that allowed humans to speak also caused problems? Yeah, this is another fascinating thing we haven't, we haven't gotten into yet, but um, in the process of writing this book, I, this was something I, I felt like after I learned it, I was like, wow, that feels like the kind of thing I should have known as a biologist, but I just didn't really have a good grasp of it, which is the placement of the human voice box. So in all other mammals, the voice box, the larynx, so you can kind of find it on a, you can, it's easy to find on a male because there's this little cartilage that juts out that makes your Adam's apple. Um, in, in all other mammals, all those structures are much up, higher up in the throat. And the, the epiglottis, which is the little structure that acts like a toilet seat, it flaps down over the trachea when you swallow to keep food out of the trachea and force it down into the esophagus. And, and in all other mammals, that epiglottis, it, 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 it pushes right up against the soft palate, way up high in, in their mouths, which, which gives them a great separation, all other mammals, gives them a great separation between the path where air needs to go and the path where food needs to go. Well, in, in adult humans, all those structures are much, 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 much lower in the throat. And what it allows for is it allows us to manipulate the air that passes up through there and, and change, you know, and change how that air flows out with the muscles in our throat and our tongue and turn it into speech. And that's something that is uniquely human. But the cost of that is that you lose that, that hookup between the epiglottis and the palate. And we're much more prone to choking which is this really, really interesting trade-off between, between, so there's this really, there's this trade-off between speech and choking. <laughs> I have a, a spaniel who snores. So is <laughs> snoring common among most mammals? In, in uh, the case of my dog, he has a very short nose. Uh, yeah. I was wondering whether, since humans have a short nose, that might be a factor. Yeah, it's absolutely a factor. So I, I think it's one of the only sort of other animals that suffers from some of these types of problems are these domesticated dogs, where we have sort of forced selection on them in unique ways that has flattened their snouts and made it such that, so their larynx is still high, but they have these shortened snouts that sort of can cause difficulties with their breathing in ways that aren't really affected, that don't really affect other animals. Some of the most, one of the most interesting things about it for me is to look at it's to think about how infants are set up. So infants, human infants, um, they have the, the, the ancestral setup when they're born, they have this high epiglottis that, that gives them this, this perfect separation of their trachea and their esophagus. And so as long as nothing goes in there, 
um, other than the liquid food that, that they should be getting, then they are not really prone to choking. But over the first year or two of life, um, their voice box starts to starts to descend and they go from just being able to holler and cry to start starting to form words. And that's the moment in time when they also be, become very choking susceptible. Now, of, of course, an infant is choking susceptible if something gets in there that's not supposed to be in there. Um, some hard food item or some, you know, one of their brother's toys that's lying around. But when they, when it really starts to become a problem is when their larynx descends and that sort of happens at the exact moment in time when hard food starts to get introduced. So I, I talk in that chapter about the importance of chopping up grapes and chopping up hot dogs and chopping up all these things that can potentially get stuck in a kid's windpipe as their larynx descends into a choking prone position. But getting back to snoring, some people barely snore and others snore so loudly you can hear them in the next room. Um, <laughs> Is yeah. How does evolution play a role in all that? And is it a good idea for us to be making so much noise while we're sleeping? Wouldn't that have uh, put us in danger when we were out in the wild and and uh, and there were animals that might have attacked us? Yeah, it's I, yeah, it's absolutely uh, something that I, I I can't come up with any possible positives of snoring. I think I think snoring's uh, snoring is simply a like like the risk of choking. It is a it is a con that does not outweigh the benefit of, of speech and this incredible way that we have of communicating. So the, the benefits of communication outweigh the trade-offs in this case, and the trade-offs are susceptibility to choking. And for some people, an increased likelihood of snoring. It all has to do with sort of the, all those muscles that are, that are in the throat relaxing to a degree that, that as the air comes up through there, it, it, it makes this sound. So so yeah, I think snoring is it's it's clearly not such a big problem that it, you know, that it overruled our ability to to speak, you know, that it, that it sort of trumped the ability to speak, but it, it certainly seems like um I I can't I can't imagine it would have been a, a positive thing for I mean still not for anybody that has to sleep next to somebody that's snoring. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large at WBAI, New York 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Alex Bezarides. Uh, his book, Evolution Gone Wrong, The Curious Reasons Why Our Bodies Work or Don't, published by Hanover Square Books. Um, why do human women menstruate when other mammals don't? Do we know this why? to me was one, yeah, this to me was one of the most fascinating topics of the book. So the vast majority of mammals, um, they, they only make changes to their uterine lining in response to pregnancy. So they wait until they get pregnant to start making these sort of dramatic cellular changes to the uterine environment to, to nurture the pregnancy, but humans and a few select other mammals, it's about 5% of mammals. Um, it's the other old world primates, a few new world primates, and then just a couple of really weird ones on the, on the animal tree. Like there's some elephant shrews and, and some, uh, a couple of bats. Um, there's this select group that includes humans that they make the changes to their uterine lining in preparation for pregnancy. So before they even know if pregnancy is going to occur, the uterine lining starts to change and makes these dramatic cellular changes. And what you if, call spontaneous decidualization or what is that, called spontaneous decidualization? That, 
That's exactly right. The process is called spontaneous decidualization and it's, and it's occurring and the word spontaneous is in there because it's occurring. It just occurs in response to hormonal changes in the body. And it does not, it does not occur in response to pregnancy. And if pregnancy then does not occur, those cells have changed to such a dramatic degree that they, they can't rewind. They can't go back. And the only option is to get rid of them, to slough the tissues and the blood and rinse and repeat and start over. So the question then really becomes, well, why do that? Like why, why make all these changes before pregnancy if you're just going to have to get rid of everything if pregnancy then doesn't occur? And that's not something people really thought about until relatively recently. Um, and the leading, there's a couple of a couple of hypotheses about why we do that. And one of them is born of this notion of, of maternal fetal conflict. So the fetus, it turns out, bores into a human female to just almost an unprecedented degree in mammals. It's called invasive placentation. It just really, really roots in there into a human, into a human female. And it, it pushes right up against her blood vessels and can manipulate her 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 physiology um, leading to issues like gestational diabetes or preeclampsia. And the thought is that by changing the uterine lining in advance of pregnancy, it allows the woman to sort of build up a little bit of a layer of defense against the hyper burrowing fetus. To, to but some women have difficult pregnancies and others don't. Yeah. And there, there are definitely, there's variability in the degree to which a woman's body decidualizes this uterine lining and her ability and even her ability to build up that, that uterine defense. And that, that is part of the explanation behind why some women are more prone to some of these conditions than others. You don't deal with this, but I was wondering why uh, women can no longer have children after menopause while men can continue to cause pregnancies throughout their entire lives and how that would have uh, developed through, uh, evolution. Yeah. I think the, the, the most, the clearest answer to that for me is, is that we just live now so long past reproductive age. Most women go through menopause between 50 and 52 and, and really that would have historically been at or near the end of a woman's life anyway. Um, so I think historically, probably both parties were effectively fertile for, for a, the majority of their lives. There's also a, a, a notion sort of called the grand, you know, the grandmother hypothesis, where, whereas the grandmother would, would sort of shift from this having the children to just helping to support the children. So that, that could have been sort of an evolutionary explanation behind it, whereas that would continue to allow her genes to pass forward by helping her daughter or her son raise their children. And you still see that today, of course, now that we, now that we live so much longer, um, both, both sets of grandparents continue to play in many cases, a very active role in, in supporting their, their children and their genes through the, through those next generations. Do we see that in other primates? Cause chimpanzees are in many ways similar to humans. Yeah, that's a good question. That's not something I've that's not that's not something I've read about is is how many if there are other examples of animals that that live well beyond their reproductive years, like in particularly in females. It's a really it's a really good question. I like to that's the kind of thing I write down when I'm done with these interviews because because I like. And here's another one. Yeah. Can we explain homosexuality through evolutionary terms? Yeah, there's been some really recent. Um, um, evidence about sort of the 
how homosexuality can get passed down through the generations, sort of where it can, it can, where homosexual individuals will help support their family members as they have children. And then those family members may have more children and support more children than they would have to begin with. And in that way, like the, the genes for homosexuality will be passed on through, you know, indirectly through their, through their, through their siblings. And that's a way that, that homosexuality can get passed from one generation to the next. So it might not be happening directly from an individual, but it happens indirectly because of course, you know, your, your siblings, like my, your siblings share half of your DNA, just, just like your, just like your children do. And I have to leave it there. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. Yeah. Well, uh, I, it's been a really, it's, I've really enjoyed the, the discussion. And me as well. And I hope our audience, uh, my guest has been Alex Bezarides. His book, Evolution Gone Wrong, The Curious Reasons Why Our Bodies Don't Work, published by Hanover Square Press. Thank you again. Thanks for having me. And that brings us to the end of today's show. A special thanks to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to my executive producer, Jesse Lent, for all of the important work that they do throughout the week. If you'd like to hear more, you can access our archive of over 500 interviews at WBAI.org. We're also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past programs at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Org. Before I sign up today, I need to take just a minute to ask you to support the station. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to please step up and make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online right now to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Like most public radio stations across the country, WBAI BAI has been hit hard financially by this pandemic, and a lot of our longtime supporters have had to drop their membership, which is why we're asking anyone who's able to in this time of crisis to please step up and make a contribution to help keep community radio and Leonard Lopate at large on the air. Remember, WBAI is supported 100% by listener support. Uh, the way to to help us is by calling right now again 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to wbai.org and becoming a sustaining member of the station what we call a bai buddy is a particularly great way to support bai without having to shell out a lot of money at one time you can become a bai buddy or make a contribution to, of any amount by going to that website give to wbai.org or by calling 212 2092950. And to everyone who's already supporting the station in the name of London Topate at Large, we thank you so much. And I hope you can join us on Monday when investigative journalist Michael Blanding will discuss his enlightening new book, North by Shakespeare, A Rogue Scholar's Quest for the Truth Behind the Bard's Work. Have a great weekend.